Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. So, Sarah, spring does seem to be hurtling past and we have been trying to make the most of the sunshine, peeking through the clouds occasionally by taking some road trips to explore the great outdoors, although it has been punctuated by a bit of moaning from the backseat as to whether we're there yet, as usual. That is definitely something I recognise. So, we, we, yeah, we opted for a road trip over the Easter break. And actually, the worst thing about our trip was, was the souvenir we decided to bring back with us, which was COVID. So although we're lucky, we, we've got quite a mild case, but it's still, uh, yeah, not, not an ideal souvenir to bring back. Certainly isn't. Well, I hope you're feeling better. I'm glad you're here. Now, looking ahead, we do, of course, have a few more bank holidays coming up. I hope you're better by then. But our car is fast becoming too small, a combination of long teenage limbs and tumultuous hormones, I think, taking its toll. But buying a new one is out of the equation right now. As we've been discussing on this podcast, the supply chain crisis means there's a long wait for a new model. So we're going to let the train take the strain. With a rail card, it is a lot easier on the wallet and the environment, of course. Yes, the soaring cost of fuel is making so many of us question whether we should be taking these longer trips. And then, of course, if you choose to fly instead, then you've got these big rises in the cost of flights. And that's all bad enough. And then you've got to consider those huge queues in the airports over Easter. So there is a really good chance that more of us are going to stay closer to home this year. So as the cost of living crisis continues to bite, it does seem at least some of us will be taking and making more environmentally conscious decisions. But what is the impact going to be on a national and international scale? We were already undergoing a fundamental rethink about how and where we get our energy and those deliberations have now reached fever pitch with the war in Ukraine sending the oil price rocketing as calls mount for Europe to impose an oil embargo on Russia. On the one hand, it's prompted countries all over the world to make promises about using energy more wisely, and that could accelerate the move to renewable energy. But then on the other hand, there's still the need for fossil fuels in the interim. So countries like the UK are planning new licences for oil and gas exploration. So the question is whether Russia's invasion of Ukraine is going to lead to an acceleration of the transition to renewable energy, or whether it'll actually put it into reverse. And that's what we're going to be exploring on today's podcast in an episode we're calling The Carbon Conundrum. The UK is throwing its weight behind renewables like wind as well as nuclear power, but where will hydrogen fit into the mix? To find out, we have Dr Vidal Barra, Chief Operating Officer at Bramble Energy with us. So the company's addressing key challenges in the production of hydrogen fuel cells, and I'm really looking forward to speaking more about it, Vidal. Hi guys, thanks for having me on today. I'm really excited to talk about this, and I think it's a really key time to be addressing this now. Thanks, Vidal. I know we're going to hear a lot more from you in a few minutes' time. We'll also be chatting to our lead equity analyst, Sophie Lund-Yates, about the state of play regarding the big energy giants and their energy transition, particularly given the conflict in Ukraine. Hi there, Sophie. Hi, Susanna. Yes, definitely a lot going on in the space right now and looking forward to uh, getting into that a little bit deeper later on. And we'll get the lowdown from our head of research and analysis here at HL, Emma Wall, about how managers of ESG funds are navigating all of this. Environmental, social and governance has to be on their minds. But first, let's look at the energy market right now. The price of oil really shot up in the weeks following the invasion, with Brent crude peaking at $139 a barrel. The invasion, of course, set off a chain reaction of events, with the US banning Russian energy imports and the UK promising to phase them out by the end of the year. Europe has resisted so far an embargo, but even so, there has been a reluctance of firms to ship Russian oil. So exports from Russia have dwindled, but 
OPEC plus countries, those oil producing nations, have refused to turn on the taps more fully than planned. Now, that's led to renewed worries about whether there will be enough oil to go round to meet demand. And it's led to the unprecedented release of emergency oil reserves by the US and other nations to try and bring down the cost and help consumers at the pumps. Yes, and of course, the cost of energy has been a big driver of inflation, which is such a worry right now. And that's not just for governments and central banks who've got the really tricky task of trying to keep a lid on it, but also for those of us who are wrestling with higher bills. So in a survey by the Office for National Statistics, more than three quarters of people said the price of fuel was responsible for the higher cost of living. And among those who pay energy bills, around four in ten said it was at least somewhat difficult to afford them. And that's hardly surprising, really, when you just see how much monthly direct debits have increased overnight recently. The more positive news is that the release of energy oil reserves you mentioned has really helped push the cost of crude further away from the sky-high prices we saw in early March. But prices are still up by more than 30% since the start of the year, so we're still really feeling the pain. So European nations are debating whether to bring in a ban on Russian oil, but in the interim they've been urging people to use less energy. So the suggestions, they've been drawn up with the International Energy Agency, and they include things like driving less, working from home three days a week, and turning down the air conditioning. Given that trying to find alternative supplies is proving so difficult, it seems that getting people to change the way they live is seen as the most immediate way of reducing the reliance on Russian energy. I'm sitting here in a cosy jumper, Sarah, turned down the dial on the heating. But all of this really has put a harsh spotlight on the reliance so many countries have had on fossil fuels from Russia and the need to accelerate the green transition. But at the same time, in the short term, there is real concern about energy security, keeping the lights on and the factories running if the tap to a major source of energy is abruptly turned off. So that's why at the same time as promising to turn greener, governments are queasy about weaning off fossil fuels too quickly and are rapidly laying the groundwork to invest in new liquid natural gas terminals like Germany is doing or offer new licences for oil and gas exploration as in the UK. But of course the worry is that these policies will lock nations into fossil fuels for longer, meaning that they could miss their climate pledges at a time when the need to transition to clean energy is even more urgent. There is also a worry that in focusing on short-term needs, it could mean they'll neglect other renewable technologies and companies desperate for investment to grow. Now, the UK has pledged to reform planning rules to cut approval times for new offshore wind farms from four years to one year to speed up the transition. But at the heart of the new energy strategy is the acceleration of nuclear power adoption with plans for it to meet a quarter of electricity demand. But crucially, there's also to be a new licensing round of North Sea oil and gas projects planned to launch in the autumn to boost the UK's energy security. And although gas produced in the UK does have a lower carbon footprint than if it's imported from abroad, the worry is that the UK will rely on gas for a lot longer. Yes, and although hydrogen power did make the UK's energy security policy, it was a lot further down the list of pledges with the aim to create up to 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030. So how has that pledge gone down with those in the industry? Let's bring in Dr Vidal Barath, Chief Operating Officer at Bramble Energy. So can I start by asking what you make of the UK's energy security policy? It's definitely a step in the right direction. Does it go far enough is a is a different question. And when we look at pledges like this we need to delineate between what is a goal and what is a strategy and uh, certainly for us in the hydrogen space we can see that there's a goal um, but we don't see the strategy to get there. Did you want to see hydrogen play a much bigger role because there is this pledge 
to create 10 gigawatts of low carbon hydrogen production capacity by 2030. Does that fall way short of your expectations? It certainly doesn't feel as though it's enough. Hydrogen has a massive part to play in how we decarbonise our world. It's going to be a major part of the energy mix because of its versatility as an energy vector. Um, And it would have been great to see a bit more commitment towards how we achieve that. But as I say, we're glad to see it feature. We're looking forward to having more of it featuring going forward. And tell me a little bit more generally about your business, what you do and why um, you think, you know, part of your operations could help uh, create this kind of game changer strategy for the industry. Bramble Energy is um, a really innovative company that spun out of Imperial College and UCL a few years ago. We're an electrochemical devices company. We currently focus on fuel cells, which is how you consume hydrogen to create electricity. But we also have different aspects to our business, such as hydrogen generation through electrolysis. So yes, uh, Vidal, this whole process it's highly expensive, isn't it? The way hydrogen gas is extracted from water involves running this high electric current through water to separate hydrogen and oxygen atoms. Is it really viable to energise hydrogen then domestically at low cost because it's so complex? The actual devices, the electrolyzers that create the hydrogen are actually expensive in their own right. Now, Bramble's unique technology, which manufactures fuel cells and electrolyzers through the printed circuit board industry, actually is completely game-changing in this area. We found ways in which to reduce the cost of these devices significantly. Now, that brings us one step closer towards existing electricity-generating mechanism costs, something that the industry is desperate to have seen. Presumably part of this process is that, that it requires sort of energy in in order to um, sort of generate um, the electricity. And presumably that there is a reliance to a certain degree on fossil fuels at the moment. What do you sort of see happening in order to make the process greener overall? Today around the world, we actually use over 70 megatons of hydrogen globally per year. All of that hydrogen is currently generated using grey mechanisms. That means that it's not green and it's not clean. We need to find a way to aggressively move that amount of hydrogen to green generation just to satisfy our current hydrogen demand. As we move forward into using hydrogen for electrification purposes, there'll be an even more demand for that green hydrogen. And that means having to use renewable energy to generate it, such as wind and solar. Now, you mentioned just now, Vidal, that you are one step closer to this really becoming a a price whereby it's attractive for potentially um, regular electricity generation. But what steps still need to be taken before you reach that point? And what kind of extra support do you need? One of the big players in supporting an industry like ours are these targets, the goals for net zero by 2050 and different transportation sectors making their own pledges. So we're working with companies in aviation and the marine sector, as well as on the roads for haulage and transportation. And each of these sectors need to drive their own change. There is scepticism about the use of hydrogen because it's so volatile. Do you think you're seeing that coming from industry sectors and consumers still? You'd be surprised how little we're getting that sort of commentary these days. As with any fuel, it's about how you manage it and its safety case. In fact, I'm currently sat in a hydrogen vehicle doing this interview. I drive this car every day and I've never had an issue. And there's lots of information out there that sort of debunks the mysteries around hydrogen safety. Yeah, you're parked up 
outside your new facility, aren't you, at Crawley in the UK. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit more about how easy it is to attract investment right now. You mentioned you're in this hydrogen car, you mentioned how easy it is, but at the same time, electric vehicles are really gaining ground, uh, a lot of adoption. Is it a harder sell um, to compete against other technologies right now? I would precursor that question with saying that renewable technologies are all very different and we are really facing quite quite the climate crisis. We actually need all types of renewable energy in order to overcome it. So we often get this argument about whether it's batteries versus fuel cells and who's going to win and and Elon Musk is really, you know, waving the flag for batteries and they're definitely going to win it. The truth is it's not really about that. It's about how we all sort of play in the same sandpit together. And it's about the different use cases. It's a it's a horses for courses type analogy. If you, for example, have a small city car and you only drive from your home to the shops and you've got off-street parking, an electric car is brilliant. However, if you need to drive lots of miles or you need to move heavy things long distances, you absolutely need hydrogen. We often talk to people who want to make buses, for example, who are trying to electrify it, and they, they, the automatic look is towards batteries. But as you understand the use cases and the drive cycles better and the utilisation of the asset, you will often find that hydrogen makes more sense for those type of applications. So practically, if you're running a truck, for example, you've got a big trucking business, what would you have to do to power your vehicles on hydrogen? What are the practical steps and how does it work? One of the great things about commercial vehicles is that often they start and end at the same point. That means that you can have a depot where you can refuel. So, for example, if you had a hydrogen refueling station at your depot, you would be able to drive back to your depot after your trip, refuel your vehicle within the same sort of time frame as petrol or diesel, and then have it back on the road doing its deliveries. If you consider that application with a battery pure battery electric vehicle, you would have to come back and charge up your quite large battery um, for quite a long time. Now, as I say, that's not to say that fuel cells versus batteries again. It's just in this particular use case, a fuel cell potentially with a hybridised battery makes the most sense. Have you noticed any change in enthusiasm for your technology since the war in Ukraine? Has there been an acceleration of interest? One of the things I think that the, the war in Ukraine has highlighted, and of course a terrible event, is energy security across the world, um, especially in Europe. And what hydrogen allows you to do is really firm up our energy security. Because we're essentially taking our wind and solar and storing it in hydrogen for deployment wherever we need it, whether it's in vehicles for transportation or whether it's in your home or for portable power applications, we're not reliant on anyone else. And this is actually why we see countries like China have really moved towards hydrogen. Countries that are not rich in natural resources or what we would typically class as natural resources are finding hydrogen a really great way to secure their energy futures too. In terms of the future then, so obviously there's lots of opportunities for hydrogen, but where do you see the key challenges at the moment? The key challenges really lay in cost. And actually, in fact, it is the thing that Bramble Energy is trying to solve. Um, It's about the cost of the electrolyzer that creates the hydrogen, and it's about the cost of the fuel cell that takes the hydrogen and converts it to useful electricity in the end application. And Bramble Energy's technology allows us to solve that problem. So how far away are we, do you think, Vidal, from a scenario where hydrogen is powering many more of our homes? It's a great question because... 
it's it's not just about your homes it's about your lifestyles it's already starting to power some of mine as i mentioned before about with my hydrogen vehicle however i think what we're seeing in the last couple of years is a much greater appetite towards hydrogen as an energy vector and that is because of education decision makers across different industries and sectors are now better educated to understand that it's not about just throwing more batteries into their use cases it's about getting the right mix for their problems and their applications so as i say we're now talking to many more manufacturers especially within the aviation and the the haulage and the light vehicle space that require hydrogen as well as batteries so it's the mix that is the way forward okay vidal thank you very much it's really great uh, to have you on the show and get your perspectives for the future and learn more about your specific technologies so thank you thanks for having me guys so let's bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now, our lead equity analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And Sophie, you've been looking at some of the listed companies operating in the energy sector. Let's start with BP. What has the Ukraine crisis meant for its ongoing energy transition? So to put it simply, BP has been quite brave with its approach to the future. And all I mean by that really is that it's allocating a lot of capital expenditure to lower carbon assets. The group spent $4.7 billion on gas and low carbon projects last year. And that's just slightly below what it spent on on oil and gas operations. So that gives you an idea of of how seriously BP is taking this. Um, And kind of a step further is that by 2030, the group expects to be spending $5 billion a year on low carbon energy projects up from just 1.5 billion in 2021. Um, And the reason that I've described this as as brave um, is really because if the low carbon shift happens more slowly than expected, then BP is giving itself a lot less to rely on. And at the same time, the new strategy calls for a 20 fold increase in renewable generating capacity, big increases in biofuel and hydrogen output, um, increased focus on its petrol station convenience offering and continued investment in electric vehicle charging. So meanwhile, the carbon intensity of the group's remaining oil and gas assets is also going to fall. I feel like this approach is, is definitely an inspiring one. Looking at it from the investment side, BP may be swapping high returning, high quality oil and gas fields for low returning renewables with an unproven track record. So at the moment, there are a few concerns because the highly elevated oil price means things are going well. But as and when that does turn, um, I can't rule out a tougher time for BP. Exiting Russia has also been very costly for Shell, hasn't it? Precisely. And of course, I can't be talking about BP without tackling Shell too. So Shell has made some big commitments and it's committed to halving emissions from operations by 2030. Um, The issue is is getting this to happen will mean massive spending on new technologies and or restructuring of of the business. Timelines and budgets for this are, are a bit unclear at the moment. And like I was saying with BP, Shell will be first and foremost an oil and gas company for some time to come. Um, so while the oil price is supportive, that does put Shell in a good position. Um, but those with a more ESG motivated investment style might prefer a bit more detail on, on the how and when of low carbon investing. And what about some of the other less well-known energy companies that are out there? So some of our listeners won't have heard of Ceres Power. Um, the company is a UK based fuel cell technology and engineering company. The company is involved in the development and selling of, of this tech So Ceres provides clean energy to businesses, homes and vehicles. From a technical side, it's a developer of solid oxide electrochemical technology. I always have to practice saying that one a few times, um, which is applied in fuel cells and hydrogen. 
its steel cell technology can generate power from conventional fuels like natural gas and from sustainable fuels like biogas, ethanol and or hydrogen. So this is clearly an exciting place to be in, um, kind of a, a joy to research. And even more exciting from, from the business angle is that revenues after the current year are expected to start growing at a very reasonable rate. Um, unfortunately, profits aren't expected to follow anytime soon and the group's looking to be loss-making for at least the next few years. Um, and getting new tech like this off the ground and at scale, it just doesn't come cheap. And that's the, that's the crux of the matter, really. There is a strong argument to say that in, in today's world, companies like Sarah's deserve support. Um, I think that what they do is, is really impressive and it may appeal to investors who, who can handle the risks. Um, however, as always, I would usually prefer to see an example of sustained organic profits before giving a total green light. And that is simply from a risk and, and volatility perspective. Thanks, Sophie. It's, it's really interesting to see the breadth of energy companies affected by this transition to renewables. I should also add that, as always, no views given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. Investing in individual companies is high risk compared to investing in funds, as your investment is dependent on the fate of one company, and any investment should be made as part of a diversified portfolio. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne with me, Susanna Streeter and Sarah Coles. Now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's unsurprisingly immersed in the world of ESG investing, into which much of renewables sector falls. Can I get you to start, Emma, by telling us a little bit about what ESG actually means? Absolutely. If you'll excuse the pun, I want to shine a bit of a light on what ESG means, because at HL we believe investing with environmental, social and governance criteria in mind it just means good risk management. So you want to invest in sustainable businesses, businesses that aren't going to fall foul of regulation or dwindling consumer demand because of the way they operate. That means they're more likely to have sustainable revenues, sustainable profits and sustainable dividends. Our house view is is not to take an exclusions approach, but instead focused on best in class. So the main oil majors have vastly differing approaches to timelines when it comes to investing in renewable energy, for example. A best in class investor recognises that oil and tobacco are going to make up a part of our society for years to come. And what matters is supporting those that are striving to do their best for the environment, society and integrate the highest levels of governance. That said, there are certain sectors, loaned colloquially as sin stocks, that for some people are just unpalatable to invest in. So it may not matter that a tobacco company is pivoting away from cigarettes, for example, into vaping, or that an oil major is developing renewable energy technology. For some people, they just don't want any part of it. So what does this mean for fund investing? Well, first up, it's important to clarify that each fund's approach to responsible investing is different and you need to make sure that it's consistent with your views before you invest. So exclusions investing, which I mentioned a bit earlier, means funds that avoid companies that do harm to society, like weapons manufacturing, tobacco's company, oil and gas. This is also called negative screening. So cutting out certain industries completely is one way to make sure that your investment portfolio is in line with your morals. But it's important to note that it can affect performance. So, for example, if you invest in a fund without exposure to the oil and gas industry, it would do well compared to unrestricted funds when the industry is out of favour, but it won't do so well if the industry recovers. And we have seen this recently with the commodity rally. Stewardship funds invest slightly differently. So they invest to deliver a good return alongside sustainable benefits for the economy, the environment and society. Fund managers practising good stewardship vote at AGMs, that's annual general meetings, and engage with company managers to hold them to account. 
ESG integrated funds systematically consider environmental, social and governance factors as part of their wider risk management processes. Sustainability funds try to make money by investing in companies that are more sustainable than their competitors or that are likely to benefit from the growing need for more sustainable goods and services. And finally, impact investing goes one step further. These funds measure and report back on the positive impact that they set out to make on the environment and society. For some investors, performance may not be the only consideration and they be, may be more willing to compromise on returns than on their ethics. ESG integrated funds and those with a more sustainable focus normally give the manager a bit more freedom to invest in a broader range of areas. They can invest where they see best opportunities and the extra diversification should mean that the fund is less volatile over the longer term. So there's lots of different approaches that managers can take to ESG. How should investors think about integrating that into their portfolio? So most fund managers are now at least thinking about how environmental, social and governance risks impact company revenues. Our fund research specifically calls out how fund managers are integrating environmental, social and governance factors into these investment processes, both at a fund house level, which means, you know, the fund groups that are providing the funds, so the Artemises, the Jupiters, the Black Rocks, and how fair and progressive that parent company is, and also at a fund level. So we only promote the fund providers that we think are doing a great job of managing ESG risks. In particular, we think Fund Group Legal and General does this well, as does Aviva and Aberdeen Standard. And they all score more than 80% in our ESG fund house dashboard. But if you want to be more proactive in your approach, you could go a step further and invest a portion of your portfolio in an ethical fund, which, as I explained, screens out companies that cause negative impact on the global society. And we like Aegon ethical equity in this space. They don't um, invest in tobacco or alcohol or any of the sin sectors that I mentioned earlier. Or you could choose an impact fund that invests in companies making a positive contribution to society. This can be through green energy producers and companies involved in environmental cleanup and recycling. So Web Sustainability focuses on nine sustainable investment themes, which range from cleaner energy to resource efficiency and sustainable transport, education and well-being. Thanks, Emma. That was a bit of a whistle-stop tour of ESG, but it was a great insight into investors' options. I should also add that investing in these funds isn't right for everyone, so you should only invest if the fund's objectives are aligned with yours and you specifically need this type of investment. You need to get to grips with the specific risks of a fund before you invest and make sure any new investment forms part of a diversified portfolio. You can find out more about these funds, their charges, risks and key information documents on our website. Sarah and Emma, thank you very much. And now it is time for the quiz. I've been delving into some of the more unusual ways we found to power our lives since time memorial. Are you are you ready for this, Sarah? I'm never ready for the quiz. I think we've established that at this stage. <laughs> OK, for the first one, you might have to hold your nose. So back in 2014, the UK's first poo bus launched. And I'm very proud to say Bristol was the home to this first bio bus, which was powered by human and food waste. It was led by Wessex Waters renewable energy company, Jenny Co, to show how biomethane gas produced during the treatment of sewage and organic waste could be used as a sustainable alternative to traditional fossil fuels. So my question to you, Sarah, is how much poo was needed to generate enough gas for a full tank and power the bus for 186 miles? Was it... The annual waste from five people, the annual waste from 50 people, 
or the annual waste from 75 people. This famous poo bus just keeps coming up on this podcast, doesn't it? I think none of us can resist a toilet joke. Um, but I have absolutely no idea how much it took to power the bus. So oh, I'll go for 50 people. No, the answer is five people. So it goes a long way. But you can win a bonus point if you can tell me which number the bus operated under. Now, that I actually do know. So it was famously the number two. Well, of course it was. Of course it was. Sadly, plans to roll out a fleet of number two buses went down the pan after the government turned down a funding bid. So the number two bus no longer operates. But dozens of buses running on biomethane do run now across the city, but they're powered by food waste instead. OK, we've had poo. Let's move on to wind. So we've been using it as a form of power for thousands of years, from propelling boats floating down the Nile River back in 5000 BC to the very first windmills, which are thought to have been used for irrigation and milling in Persia, now Iran. But when were the first modern day wind turbines developed to generate electricity? Was it in 1807, in 1887 or in 1907? Oh, blimey, that's that's a hard one. Um, Well, well, I mean, I I know everyone, the sort of the the point at which everyone was really excited about electricity was the 1880s, because that's when the electric light bulbs arrived. So it can't have been then. It must have been later. So I'll go for 1907. No, it was actually 1887, so it seems they were all having their light bulb moments at the same time. But the it could be a bit more uh, background to all of this. The inventors vying for position of pioneer in the field of wind in this year were Charles Brush, who built a wind-powered electric generator in the backyard of his mansion in Cleveland, Ohio, and Professor James Blythe, a Scottish electrical engineer who built a turbine to light his holiday home in Mary Kirk. So although Blythe received recognition for his contributions to science, wind power was considered uneconomical and no more wind turbines were built in the UK until 1951, some 64 years after Blythe built his first prototype. Yeah, I mean, a man ahead of his time there. So clearly the wind has changed a bit in the interim. It certainly has. Okay, we're going to stay in Scotland now, as it's the location for another alternative energy source. Now, we're not talking chip fat here, although given the popularity of deep fried Mars bars in some parts of the country, you could be forgiven. But no, pot ale is used to generate biogas. It's the byproduct from which manufacturing process is it? Smoking salmon, weaving tartan, or distilling whiskey. Well, I'm I'm appalled to hear you maligning the deep fried Mars bar. I, I would say just don't knock it till you've tried it. It's a fine mainstay of the very late night trip to the chip shop. I think. But I'm, I'm suppose in pot ale terms, I mean, I would love it to be weaving tartan just because I want that to be an answer to one of the quizzes. But it has to be distilling whiskey, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It was an easy one there, Sarah. And you're right. Pot ale is a liquid byproduct of the malt whiskey distillery process. And now the bioscientist founder of a company called Celtic Renewables, Martin Tangney, has developed a fermentation process to transform this ale into a biochemical that can replace some of the petrol and diesel used in cars. So there you have it. Whiskey powered vehicles could be the future. Finally, how about a boogie to power a nightclub? Uh, tell me a bit more. Club Watch in Rotterdam was one of the first to bring the concept of harnessing kinetic energy and turn human moves on the dance floor into the energy needed to power the lights and music. 
Its sustainable dance floor was created by the company Energy Floors, which claimed that dancing on each tile could produce up to 35 watts of energy, which can then be fed into the venue system to help power the DJ booth and the lights. Now, the concept's been taken on with another company, PaveGen, selling tiles to be embedded in city streets, including Washington, D.C., with the movement of thousands of passers-by helping keep the lights nearby on. But just how effective is kinetic energy, really? So my question to you, Sarah, is... How many people would it take, do you think, to do 10,000 steps each on such floors to produce the energy needed to power an average Dutch house for a day? Is it 8 to 16 people, 80 to 160 people or 800 to 1,600 people? I suppose on those days when when the kids are running around, it feels like it might be one. You know, there's enough kinetic energy in one child to power half a country. But in reality, I know it's going to be loads more. Um, So I'll go with 80 to 160. No, it is more than that. 800 to 1,600 people would all need to do their 10,000 steps outside to create enough energy to power a home. So that's an awful lot of people, an awful lot of steps, unless they were doing John Travolta-style Saturday Night Fever moves, of course. So, Sarah, you are back to two correct answers. So a bit of a better performance because you got that bonus point. So a combination of poo, wind, whiskey and disco seems to suit you. Oh, thank you. I really don't like how that sounds at all. But, you know, you gave me a bonus point. I'm not going to argue. Well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 28th of April 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Fidel, Sophie, Emma and our producer, Elizabeth Potson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon, of course. So if you enjoyed this podcast, particularly the quiz, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. <laughs>